All right. Uh, well, everybody, uh, as promised, here we are with Tommy Angelo. Welcome to the Rec Poker Podcast. Uh, we Thank are you, Steve. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on, Tommy. And uh, we are officially sponsored by Running Aces Racetrack and Casino. They've been with us from the beginning, sponsoring us, and it's been super exciting to be partnered with them. But, uh, you know, we, we talked to Eileen Sutton, and she said, uh -huh. hey, do you, would you be interested in having Tommy Angelo on? I said, well, just a second. Let me think yes. Uh, and, so she, <laughs> and so she made that connection. And uh, yeah. we're very yeah. gracious enough to uh, to respond and join us. So, uh, man, welcome! And like, where are you calling in from? Where are you at right now? I'm in Oakland, California. Okay, uh, and you and you're a transplanted. Now, are you you went to Ohio State? So, are you originally from the Midwest? Or yes, I grew up in Ohio. I lived there for 40 years, and I moved here to California 20 years ago to play poker. And I was already playing for a living about for about 10 years in Ohio and traveling around to Vegas and Atlantic City. And then uh, one thing led to another, and then I came out here and with forty grand in nineteen ninety eight, and somehow haven't gone broke. <laughs> so, so have you ever had to? Uh, I, I don't like the idea of saying a real job because poker is work. But have you ever oh, done yeah. anything from a career perspective other than poker? I did. I've had I had one actual job that I started. Uh, I worked at a grocery store in high school. Okay. Then it, I went to college for just a couple months. And then instead of going to college, I, I uh, took up bridge. So, so during my college years, I played bridge all the time and nothing but bridge and worked at the grocery store and became a life master in like three years. I held some kind of record back then for like the fastest to life master at bridge. That was in 1982. And then, um, Basically quit bridge completely and randomly became a full-time musician. Yeah. So I've always played music, but then fluke circumstances happened. I was in a band. I lost my job. Suddenly I was playing music full-time. So that became a 10-year career as a musician. During that time, I was playing poker as much as I could, always studying, learning. I got a hold of Sklansky stuff, you know, in 1987. And in Columbus, there was a big circuit of underground games that I started playing in. And so in 1990, I left the band. And became a full-time professional poker player. So I played in those those private games in Columbus for seven years, going out every night at seven o'clock, playing until four or five in the morning. Smoky, nasty, you know, drugs, everything. I mean, it was like very seedy situation. And and um, then I ran, started running games in Columbus illegally and made a got my bankroll built up running games. My game got busted, which I knew it would, and then that's when I flew west to California in nineteen ninety seven to play poker at Artichoke Joe's in San Bruno and then Lucky Chances opened right up down the road. So I've been lived on the peninsula most of my life and played at Lucky Chances, Artichoke Joe's, Bay 101. Um, now I know, because I know, I know I saw that you're a musician. I've heard that before. I didn't realize it was actually a full-time gig. So It was, 10 years. So what, are we talking, like, what, what kind of music are we talking about? Um, country and rock. That's what oh. I play, country and rock. And I've played like 3,000 gigs, about half of them on piano, half of them on drums. And I also play some other instruments, and um, but I still play a lot of music now. It's, I, I really enjoy that, not professionally, but just for funsies. So what's what's sort of the what's sort of the common theme through that? So you have you have bridge, and you have music, and you have poker. Is it the mathematical mindset? Are you a very logical mathematical approach? Um, or what's kind of the common theme? Or are they or do you see those as very different things? Well, no, actually, there's there's. Um, the bridge, you know, came and went, but the, the other thing that's been there throughout my entire life is writing. So the three things that I've done nonstop since I was like eight was music, cards, and writing. Okay. So all three of those have become careers. 
by some fluke circumstance. So last 15 years, that's probably primarily what I've been doing is, is writing and coaching. And um, so, but the thing they have in common is that there are art forms to me, including playing poker. Po playing poker has become purely an art form. And by that, I mean everything in any way you might define, like what is the artistic process of creation of trial and error and coming up with tons of ideas and throwing them out and constantly changing and revising nonstop. And then eventually saying, okay, this is done, but I'm going to move on to the next thing immediately. You know, that artistic process is how I've treated my poker game. Uh, and even more so in the last 10 or 15 years, because once I started meditating about 15 years ago, I developed a discipline to do anything I wanted. So I could, I have the control right now to do any, any experiment I want to at poker. I could go in and decide to three bet every pot. I ever played if I wanted to, you know, I have that discipline. So that has allowed me to carry on some pretty crazy experiments. And I also get more experiment um, data by the coaching I'm doing. So like a lot of the, some of the stuff we might start talking about is how I've been coaching a very positionally centric mindset and action it, with my clients, which mirrors how I play. And it's just every one of these guys that does it. And I say, this is an experiment. Try it. They come back and they're like, oh, my God, I wish I could rewind the last 10 years of my life mm. because they're just like, we're going to get to it. But there are some easy things that anybody on earth that plays poker can do that I truly now believe because of all the experimentation will improve anybody's poker game, especially if they are not already a professional. Yeah, I can't wait to dig into some of that. I mean, I love the stuff that you recently have been doing on Twitter where you, you put up the memes and you're just like, if you're in the small blind, just fold. You know, I mean, to all of these sort of, if you think you're beat, just fold. Uh, some very right. <laughs> obvious things, but yeah, we'll, we'll dig into some of that. So, so kind of, kind of, you, so you move west uh, yeah. with your bankroll and you're playing a lot of poker at the time. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. let's just kind of, let's just speed up a little bit to like where you are today. Cause I know you don't play a lot. At least you don't play a lot live. You're really focusing on your coaching yeah. and your writing and those sorts of things. Talk a little bit about um, just your transition from, you know, playing most of the time to, Right. focusing on other things and you know do you miss the game you know do you miss that part of the game or talk kind of yeah. what was the okay. transition like for yeah. that well this transition sounds really strange but you have to understand that i changed a lot from 2003 when i started meditating and then 0405 i started coaching in 04 and um so the way that i enjoy poker now is different than the way i used to enjoy it enjoy it then i used mm -hmm. to enjoy the more traditional sort of frenzied, ego-driven, gambly, you know, sort of yeah, just gambling, right? Poker. I mean, even playing tight for a living, there's the thrill and the excitement of it, right? Now, it isn't so much that I get my enjoyment from playing really, really well all the time and being completely focused on every single street of every single hand. And that's my objective is to never leak even for one hand the rest of my life. So I've gone kind of to the other extreme in terms of where I get my joy. I only play about 100 hours a year now. I typically go to Vegas for five days and just play. I rarely play locally. I just When I go play, I just go to play because I like to have unlimited time in front of me. That, that allows me to play weeklessly. Um, so what happened was in, in 04, I started coaching. 04, 05, I coached. Phil, ben, uh, Phil Galfon, David Benefield, and some other heavy hitters back then. Yeah, never right? heard of any of them, no. Uh -uh. <laughs> so, you know, a few others. And so they, they said some nice things about me in the uh, nosebleed circuit, right? Yeah. So they stopped playing and coaching completely in 2006 to write Elements of Poker. Yeah. 
which was basically all the stuff I had collected my whole life and, and put, wrote that book. As a result of that, people who hired me subsequently could read the book first and they knew where I was coming from. And so the, the efficiency of my coaching got a lot better. And because Phil and those others had said nice things, I had plenty of clients, you know, uh, um, well, I don't want to name drop, but you know, some yeah. other big hitters and, and I was coaching a lot of professionals and, um, and so then around 2009, um, so, well, 2011, Black Friday kind of killed everything, right? But even a year before that, I'd started writing Painless Poker, which was a book that took me seven years to write. And I made a decision to stop coaching for about five years and write that thing. And then I did that. And so then when Painless Poker came out a couple of years ago, now I've moved back into coaching a lot. And I changed my model. It used to be I charged 10 grand. And we and it was a huge investment in terms of um, the trust and effort that we would put into the relationship, right? We'd spend a week in Vegas together and then do a lot of follow-up coaching. Now I've changed it all together because of this technology of Zoom and self-scheduling. Uh, now what I do is half-hour or hour calls like this with clients. Yeah. Um, and you can just go to my site and schedule it, and it's 100 bucks for a half an hour. So there's like we can hit the ground running. You know, people write to me, they tell me what they want to talk about, whatever they want to say, and then off we go. Sometimes it's a one-off session with somebody, you know, didn't gel or whatever. Sometimes, you know, I have quite a few guys I've talked to every couple weeks or every month. Just depends. So this model for coaching has been really wonderful because it's kind of brought me back to my roots, which is low stakes and medium stakes, which is where I made my living, you know, as a player. Was medium, right? Medium stakes them and hold them, medium stakes no them. So now I'm coaching a bunch of one, two players and two, five players primarily at live cash games and loving it. So what do you, what do you love about it? Like what, what is that drive? Like, you oh. know, cause you could either be playing or you could be coaching and is it, obviously there's a, you know, it's more of a fixed income and those sort there's a financial piece of it, mm-hmm. but what, what is it about coaching that you love or even like this where you're you know, you don't have to do this. I'm not paying you to do this. Yeah. You're you're yeah. investing in the poker community with your knowledge. What is it about that that kind of motivates I, you? I love teaching and learning both, you know, equally. And so I teaching, um, you know, if somebody writes me a letter and they're like, okay, I'm suffering over poker because of X, Y, and Z, and then we make any kind of progress, okay, that's immensely satisfying as a teacher. And that's yeah. what drives me. Yeah. And why, I mean, another part of it is, and this is a little bit fluffy, but, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to have survived through some really monkey parts of my life and come out well. You know, I'm 60, I'm well-funded, really healthy now, and I'm extremely grateful all the time for the paths I didn't go down. And so I really want to pay it forward. I do want to give back. So the, the, the idea that I can give back in some way by way of teaching and still make enough money at it to basically fund the ability to teach more is like a dream situation. Yeah. I, I love that. I'm, I'm a pretty fluffy guy. So you're, you're, you're a good <laughs> company. You're just fine with that. Deal. Okay, good. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, you talked about, you know, you started getting into meditation around, I forget, 04 or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is a common theme among a lot of players that we, we talk about, you know, we talk to now. So I guess as you think about that, I know you've written a book actually on meditation. I think your last book yes. is on meditation. Um, what, when you think about that, how, how much has that improved your game or is it more of, you know, it's improving my life and kind of my life focus and 
there's just sort of an indirect application of my game. You know, can you can you kind of yeah. separate that or talk to poker players yeah. about I guess how that's helped you? Sure. Well, you could say it's it's well it's helped me immensely, but there's two distinct aspects of my game and other people's games that go up. One is the betting itself, the strategy. You know, the ability to put into play the strategies that you've thought about in the car or whatever, you know, without being in the fog and without being, um, uh, you know, just remaining focused on purpose, right? And But what I mean by that is the only way I can stay purely focused on a con- in a poker game, even after all these years of meditating, is to put out effort. It never, ever, ever happens just accidentally. No, I mean, it does. For, for non-meditators, we spend times of pure focus, right? But if you want to be focused 100% of the time, that takes effort, okay? Because what it means is you're going to lose focus. And by focus, I mean any kind of distraction, watching a basketball game or feeling uh, dissatisfaction because you lost a pot. We're, we're anything, right. right? So anytime any of those things happen, you're a little off whack. And you need a tool to come back to focus. And what that tool is, is doing what I'm doing right now, which is <laughs> great. You know, exhaling consciously and saying, okay, I'm aware I'm upset right now because that asshole beat me a pot. Or I'm aware that I never should have bet that stupid game in the first place. Whatever it is, it's make, getting in the way of good poker. You label it. And then what this does is it, it's a percentage play. It increases the probability that that negative thought will in negatively infect your next poker decision. So it's a nonstop resetting process that the mindfulness and the sitting up and breathing does. Um, in fact, that's how I define a successful session now is how well did I watch the action? You know, my goal is to, and I'm extremely distractible. That's the reason I worked so hard on tilt and all these issues is because I was such a tilt monkey. Right. <laughs> You're seeing the end product here. <laughs> but I'm still very distractible. I have to put effort into staying focused in a game. But I like that part. I like working at it. I love that. So, well, I've got, I've got you know, a million questions. I want to make okay. sure I get leave, leave a room for anybody in the panel have a question at this point on kind of what Tommy's covered, where he's going. Chris? Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, one of your goals in both your own play and working with uh, students is to help them play leaklessly. And so I'm curious, what, what, are the, what are the biggest leaks that you see in players, especially ones that you're coaching, um, that um, maybe anyone who's listening could work on? I'm so glad you asked that. So basically, we're going to break all leaks into two kinds, pre-flop and post-flop, okay? And the flop and the leaks I talk to clients about and that I base my game on getting rid of are the pre-flop leaks specifically. Because those are the most easy, easy to specify and get rid of. So I'm going to give you the long answer to this. So in Elements of Poker, there's a, there's a thing called the universal starting hand chart. And it's a grid. And it's basically you, you, you decide, um, you go through each preflop situation, like one razor, I'm in middle position, you know, and you decide what, is the, what are the worst hands I should ever play? So let's look at the simplest one. Under the gun, deep stack, no limit game. Let's say it's a tournament. It could be like the early rounds in a deep stack tournament. You're under the gun. Everybody here, I believe, believes that they should always fold seven deuce offsuit in the first hand of a tournament every time, right, under the gun. So that, that's now I'm changing the whole uh, 
the whole structure of the worst hand ever play thing from elements and modernizing it because of the new and one new to, to the poker world, the 13 by 13 starting hand chart grid. Okay. So now I'm, I'm and this is going to come out in a couple articles in the next couple months. The term I'm using is auto fold range. What is your auto fold range? Okay. So once you start thinking about an auto fold range, say under the gun, your then the other hands are your, it depends range. Okay, so most strategy talk that we talk about, all we're ever talking about is the it depends range. Okay, I got ace five suited under the gun. Should I play it or not? Well, it depends, right? You shouldn't, you definitely shouldn't always fold it. Like you're never, you're never going to decide I'm always going to fold that. But you are always going to fold seven deuce off suit, eight deuce off suit, right? So by separating out into the auto fold range and it depends range, it, it takes all the thinking about how to play the hands out of the discussion. All we're looking at is what do you, you think you should always fold? For example, it's folded to the big blind. He's raising 100% of the time. Okay. It's folded back to you. You're in the big blind. You're playing light. Well, well, let's say it's first round of a tournament. Okay. Do you think you should always fold Jack seven offsuit? It's my small blind. Big blind. It's going to head. It's going to be heads up you against the button with a hundred percent range. What hands do you think you should always fold? Now, you don't even have to ask it. See how your brain's working right now? That's why this exercise is, is awesome. And that's why any of my clients that do it, they come back and they're like, this is changing everything. Because it forces you to ignore every, out, every, bit, of out, every bit of input you've ever learned from the rest of the poker world. It's you alone in a room with a piece of paper. And you have to decide, I'm in the big blind, the, the button opened. He has 100% range. What hands should I always fold for the rest of my life? <laughs> player independent. That's the beauty of this thing. It's player independent, right? And anybody that does this, they're going to keep coming upon these lines. It's like, hmm, jack seven offsuit, jack six offsuit. Once you draw a line, it doesn't even matter where you draw it. Then the next time you're playing, when you're in that situation, and you've got the jack six that's right below the line that you decided on. You're like, well, if I play this hand, that's a leap. Now I'm back to your question. You have personally dis, de, uh, defined a leak. In this case, we're going to say if you play jack seven offsuit, it's okay. If you play jack six, that's a leak. That is black and white, no gray area, and you decided on it. And that's what I mean by playing leaklessly before the flop, is you figure out where your leaks are and try to stick to them. Then you can change it, right? You might go down and play, and you're like, hmm, I think jack six offsuit is or jack seven is too weak. I'm going to raise my bar to jack nine. And then you go change your chart. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So, so it really is, instead of kind of everything as it depends, you're really just sort of carving out that piece. And so that's one of your leaks is, so you're kind of defining leak there is anytime you breach your own personal. Right. Uh, yeah. What else can a leak possibly mean? I mean, think about it. A pre-flop leak. Can you go up to Matt Matros and say, hey, tell me what my preflop leaks are? I mean, define them? No. Only you know if you think you should be playing ace-five offsuit under the gun or not, or wait for ace-five suited. So that's one of the things I've been doing with my clients. It's been very successful, and it's been going so well that I'm writing a whole bunch of stuff about it. So I'm going to have an article coming out called Auto Fold Ranges, colon, a tool for fixing your poker. 
and it's going to be at my site eventually at Poker News, and it's going to have all the instructions with the charts you need and everything you need to do this exercise. And can you talk about, because one of the things I'm really fascinated um, that you talk about that I don't hear a lot of other uh, people talking about, in fact, you wrote an article about it, but is the idea of um, being able to plug those leaks with the uh, concept of waiting for straighters. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wonder if you can just talk through what, what that means and, uh, and how you apply that. Sure. So Waiting for Straighters is a recent book of mine. It's a short book. And uh, straighter is any hand that can flop a straight. So like we were talking about, that's why I was talking about jack seven, jack six. That happens to be a line I use because jack seven, you can flop a straight. Jack six, you can't. So you're talking about using the Waiting for Straighters to help plug leaks. Um, so the idea there is the, the power of the straighter versus the non-straighter is in not just the flopping the straight, but flopping a straight draw, backdooring a straight draw, all the equity advantages that come in. So, so for example, if you have jack six and you flop a pair, you have five outs to improve. If you have jack seven and you flop a pair and any of the other cards is a nine, eight, or a seven, you've got other equity in this hand. That's legit, right? It matters. And um, a lot of the big pots swing on who has those backdoor outs and those backdoor draws, okay? And so the idea of, of using waiting for straighters specifically to plug leaks is, is to wait for straighters in those situations where you're about to play specifically a suited hand that has a big gap. So the, the example I gave is actually a pretty good one. So let's say the button opens wide range comes around you, you have jack six suited in the big blind, okay? And if you call, it's going to be heads up. I'm a huge proponent of folding here. The suitedness, and there, you kind of, there's a, several pieces of this, but the suitedness itself has far less value out of position, okay? So if somebody doesn't know that, they need to understand that. In other words, the difference between jack six suited and jack six offsuit when you're going to be first the whole way is not that, is not great enough of a difference to turn a fold into a call. Okay, that's really important. However, jack seven, and I'm not saying you should call in this case with jack seven, but waiting for a straighter, if somebody does that all the time, they throw away those big gapper hands in the marginal out of position situations, okay, and wait for a straighter at least. At least then you're always going to have a little bit of that backdoor equity going for you. You know, that's part of it. Um, and back to your point about the leaking, if somebody is the type of player who does find themselves playing these uh, spaced out suited hands without an ace out of position often, then the way, which is, I believe a really huge mistake, um, then waiting for straighters is going to make them fold more. So that's ultimately what plugging leaks coming down to. I mean, that really is it is lowering your VPIP. It really ultimately comes down to nothing more than that. There's not a single person I've coached that isn't already a professional that whose score would not go up immediately if they did nothing, absolutely nothing but fold more before the flop. Hmm. You'd say that's true in tournaments as well as cash games. Is that Tommy? I, well, I can't, I can't be certain, but yeah, probably. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, tournaments are different, at least in the early rounds of tournaments, I'll say, yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, I know you're a big, a big position guy as well. You've alluded to it a couple times already, and you talk about uh, opening ranges pre-flop. 
obviously mm-hmm. by position should make a pretty significant difference. But I'd love to hear kind oh, of yeah. your your perspective on that because I think we've heard it a few different ways where the you know the the, the percentage that you open typically under the gun versus the button sometimes that's an incredibly wide gap. Some people would would say, and sometimes say people would say, well, it's you know certainly it it increases as you get to the button, but it's not as dramatic. Kind of how yeah. do you and I you know as you're maybe you're not thinking about your opening ranges as much as you're thinking about yeah. the auto folds. Right. <laughs> you know how how big of a gap is that when you're talking about opening pre flop? I believe I have the biggest gap in the world. Okay, for anybody that doesn't play 100% button range all the time, my auto fold range in the early seats is 93%. The only hands I play are pocket pairs and ace-king. I fold ace-queen suited 100% of the time as opener if I'm first in the pot. If somebody else is in the pot, my auto fold range is 42%. It goes way down. Okay. Okay. Yep. As as one of the persons in the pot, even in in an early position. In other words, I got to be behind somebody. Okay. Or I got to have a hand. My auto fold range on the button is only 34%. So I play all hands with an ace, all hands with a pair and every single straighter right down to six deuce offsuit, the worst possible straighter. Okay. So my range, my, my, it depends range under the gun is 7%. My it depends range on the button is 66%. Yep. Um, and I use that button range from the cutoff if I look left and I, and I think the button is folding. And I use my button range for the cutoff if anybody else opens the pot. Um, so I'm super positional, but, it, but the, the reason I play that way, it's not because I think position is a good idea. Okay, it's, it's way beyond and deeper than that. Okay, in every heads-up pot, every played in the world, one person has a huge advantage and the other person has a huge disadvantage. That's just the nature of the game, right? And there's no way around that, right? So if I'm in the blind and I've got a marginal hand and somebody raised and I'm faced with the option of paying money out of my net worth, to give this guy the opportunity to be last on me on the turn and river, which is the only bad thing there is in poker is, <laughs> is not being last. I mean, it's like, there's no matter how, there, no matter how I say it, it's like so obvious to me that, that the game is like almost unfairly easy. If you raise your, what I call act lacks, act last percentage way up. So I act last on about 80% of the streets I play, which you think about is just kind of ridiculous, right? But what that, but what makes that possible is that when six people limp and I've got like King seven suited in the small blind and I'm playing one, two, and it costs me $1 to call and seven people limp, I fold 100% of the time for life. Okay, so what that does is I'm not playing all those crappy hands out of position, not knowing where I'm at or what's going on. I get to take a little break before I get the button and cutoff, which is why I showed up in the first place. And um, my act last percentage goes way, way up. This is the reciprocality thing because everybody else in the world is going to play that hand in that situation. Everybody, right? But I never play it. And so that means the number of streets that I'm acting last on overall goes way, way up because I'm folding the one hand where I always act first. 
my 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 complete I I auto fold twenty seventy eight percent of my hands from the small blind, even if there's no raise. I mean that that and I have an article where I make a claim that I might be the tightest player in the small blind that's ever played because and I do that and I'm not saying other people should do this. Right. I'm just saying that I'm still making money playing like this. It's still as crazy as it sounds. Right. So all I suggest to people is at least try folding a little more in the small blind than you do now and see how it feels. I mean, give it months. I don't mean like, you know, a couple times. Do you, do you think part, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. No, 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 you go ahead. I was just going to ask, do you think part of that, one of the things that we, we talk quite a bit about position, especially for, for beginning players. And obviously part of that is the information thing. But part of that too is is just you're you're unable to extract value when you have hands too, right? Is that part of the equation, or or kind of what 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 would you say are kind of the biggest components of why position matters so much to you? Oh, well, not to me. It matters to everybody. (laughs) The the advantage of being last is there, even if you're a terrible player. It doesn't matter how good or bad anybody plays. The advantage of being able to check behind on the river, just that alone, right? Mm. I mean, you're on the river, and the other guy checks. Okay, if you've got a good hand, you get to pick your price based on all this information. And if you've got a bad hand, if you have no hand, you get to decide whether to bluff or not. Based, but you already know that he checked. You know, when you're out of position and you're bluffing the river, you have absolutely no idea, right? To me, it's like it's night and day difference. It's like why in the world would ever would anybody ever want to play any pot out of position when all you have to do is just wait a little bit and you get to be last? You know? Yeah. Um, I didn't really answer your question. No, you you did. I mean, that that's okay. really it. I know we've been we've tried to break it down a little bit to try to explain to people. It's not just it's not just because you have additional information, but there's other pieces of it too. When you have oh. a big hand, you know how hard yeah. it is to extract value. You know, you flop a set, it's right. very hard to extract value when you're out of position versus when right. you're in position. Much and and yeah, the converse is true yeah, too. It's much easier to lose a big pot, you know, or you know to lose value or whatever. Uh, when you're out and of the position. draws, are, the draws are the key, are the ones where you you have you end up paying more to get there, and you and you make less when you do get there. Right, Way, you know, right, because like the, the, the checkbacks. Yeah, straighters. example, I'm waiting for straighters. I give is like, let's say you got ace queen suited, and you flop two overs and a flush draw, and if you're first to act in a three way pot, it's like you're kind of happy with that flop, but you're still kind of uneasy, right? Right. But if you just picture yourself with that same flop, two overs and a flush draw, last to act with two other players, nothing's nothing's better. Yeah. yeah. So all you have to do to make sure that that's your whole life is just fold the early position hands. Nothing. It, it's that simple. You know. So what I do is I play what I call showdown hands, which means pocket pair and ace king. And with, with those hands, I know before the flop that I can go all the way to the river if I want to. Right. So let's say I'm playing against the 100% guy on the button and I've got ace king in the big blind. This is how I'll often play it. Let's say I'm playing cash game. He's really reckless, really, really gambling and really bluffy. I'll call the flop with a, I won't three bet. I'll just call before the flop. And no matter what the flop comes, I check call, I snap check call. And then when the turn comes, I check. And if he bets, I might check, I might call, I might fold, I might check raise. But I'm playing my ace king for value now. I mean, chances are I still have the best hand, right? And I, or, or I have a pocket pair. So, but I always have those hands. 
Not sometimes, always. And so every time I'm in one of these heads up out of position pots against a razor with a wide range, I always have a hand I can go to the river. Mm-hmm. But if I start with like nine, eight of clubs, when it gets to the river, I got nothing. I either have to throw a bluff out there or just check fold and give up. Right. I just hate that. And so I don't do it anymore. That's good. Chris, did you have something? Yeah. I just, can you talk about, uh, I mean, I, the, Position thing is really, I mean, obviously I'm a big believer in it and uh, I really like hearing you talk about it because you make it so simple to understand, but um, it's really trendy these days. Um, all the kind of poker strategy, people talk about defending your big blind, defending your big blind, but it's you're almost always then out of position. And so I'm wondering uh, what you think about the big blind and and, uh, and how you talk about that with, with okay. your positional awareness. Yeah, so I, I learned to fold the big blind Around 1991. Now, back then, <laughs> <laughs> he knows what year he learned to fold the big blind, people. Oh, yeah, I marked it on my calendar. <laughs> so, and this was Limit Hold'em now. So, now in Limit Hold'em, and this was all everybody played in the 90s, right? And Limit Hold'em it seemed even more crazy to fold the big blind because. You knew you know, exactly how big all the bets were going to be, and you could actually run odds and do way more accurate sort of projections than you can now. And, but really, here's where it came from. It came from watching professionals. You know, when I first started going to Vegas and started playing against real grinders and real pros, and I just watched them. You know, we're playing 2040 limit hold'em, right? So you got two chips out in the small blind. And – and they just fold for two more chips, fold for two more chips. Or somebody would raise and it comes down to the big blind and only costs them four more chips. And there's like 12 chips out there, right? Fold, fold. And I just like, I couldn't believe it. I was in shock. And so once I started doing it, I realized, well, this is really awesome. It was really great for my game. Um, then it took a while to understand why. <laughs> but uh, so what I do now is I fold the big blind to a raise. Um, Pretty much 78% of the time. I mean, my, my calling range to a single raise in the big blind is pocket pairs, ace-king, plus king-queen. Oh, no, I'll go down to ace-ten. I'm sorry. Ace-king, ace-queen, ace-jack, ace-ten. I don't always play those, but that's my it-depends range when calling a raise from the big blind. And then I just always have a hand. You know, the way I look at it is the default is to fold because of position, period. If the cards force me to play, then I'll reluctantly see the flop. So, so do you feel like at, I mean, at the end of the day, do you feel like um, do you feel like you're kind of playing your hands face up then a lot? I mean, do you feel like that's you're able to be exploited a bit because people know you're only defending with yeah. you know, king queen or better, you know, pairs that sort of thing. I mean, it feels yeah. like it's hard for you to get value, or is that not your primary concern? Your primary concern is is, is protection of your your current assets. This is the beauty of it is is that I first of all you'd have to play with somebody a long, long time before you were sure that their range was that narrow. And we're right. talking about the narrowest range ever, right? So, uh, um, but, but if I, I guess if I see you fold your big blind, you know, six straight well, orbits to a min raise, I'd start going, okay, this okay, guy is well, super that's, tight. That's fine. Okay, so, you know. so here's the deal. So let, let's go back to the limit holding days because this is how we discovered this. Okay. okay? It was very easy. Let's look at the combinatorics, which didn't happen back then. But if you let's say that you know for sure that somebody's opening range under the gun is ace king plus aces plus kings plus queens. That's yep. it. 
Okay. You would think that that would make them easy to play against. Right? Right. Yeah. But it doesn't. So let's give you pocket fives. Okay. So that player opens under the gun and you call with pocket five. So you're now you're in last position in a heads up pot and you absolutely know right, that they're right, right. ace king, aces, kings, or queen. Well, it's roughly 50 50. It is. When yeah. the flop comes deuce, deuce, deuce. Yep. You're 50 50. You have no fucking, excuse me. You said no. <laughs> you have no idea where you're you just, at. You just and saved me a little bit of editing. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but the point is that the, the whole idea that having a narrow range makes you easy to play against is 100% huh. wrong. It's just wrong. I could go for 20 minutes to try to explain it, but I know for a fact it's wrong because of my experience at the table, right? It also gives me extreme bluffing power, like nobody's right. business. Like, so, so the way I play small pocket pairs on, in the early seats is I either open with them like normal, but if it's a really aggressive game, I don't want to play a three-bet pot with the pocket deuces out of position, but I'm very happy to play a single-raise pot. So if it's a very aggressive game, I'll limp expecting somebody to raise and then I call and now the stacks are all right. Right. But here's what happens a lot. I limp every single time I limp under the gun, I'm looking to three bet 100% of the time. Right. Because I can sell that story because they've seen me folding. Right. So I limp with pocket deuces. Now, uh, in a, and somebody raises and a couple people call. So it's a perfect squeeze situation, right? All this dead money. And I go ahead and squeeze there. I three bet. Now, a lot of people, if, if they're playing normal rages and you think, okay, here's a guy who mixes it up. He might have 10, nine of clubs or whatever. They're going to get action. But when they're looking at me and I make that three bet, I get, I'll get called. But I know right then I am betting the flop. I'm betting close to a full-size pot bet on the flop 100% of the time. It doesn't matter what it is. And then now they're going to be faced with the – you know, do I really want to pay off the biggest nit I've ever seen? Do I really want to pay off his two aces? Right? right. So I get away with murder because I play a very creative, aggressive game after the flop with my tiny range. And then on the button, my range goes all the way down to six deuce offsuit. So it's not really easy to play against a person who has a very, very narrow range from the blinds and under the gun if they play a creative game in poker overall. <clears throat> That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good challenging, challenging my thinking for sure. Uh, John, did you have something? Yeah, I was. So we're, this podcast is focused on rec poker players. Right. And one of the most important things that rec poker players want to get out of poker uh, is having fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, most people equate playing hands to having fun. Yep. And you're talking about <clears throat> a, a good form of discipline here. So how do you change your attitude so that you are still able to have fun and enjoy the session, even though you're folding 93% of the hands under the gun? Are you asking me or are you saying how would I suggest that a rec player? Uh, or, probably means, either way. It's more important for how the rec player should do it. So I get enjoyment out of playing tight. You know, so I, I don't, my enjoyment, this is what I was saying before. The enjoyment that I used to get was from the, the thrill of the playing the hands and seeing lots of hands and seeing flops. 
Now I get a twisted sort of satisfaction out of not seeing fluffs. I know, <laughs> but that's that's just the truth. And but in terms of uh, for rec players, okay, everything I've been saying here is based on the premise of like, what would we do if we were going to try to make ourselves the greatest poker player we could, right? And then there's the realistic you know, this is where we are, what can we change, you know? So I'm all for rec players having fun. I go down the Oaks. I was playing one, two the other day and everybody's having a ball. And I enjoy that scene. I love it, even though I don't necessarily join in anymore. Um, I don't know if I've gotten off point of your question or not. What was it about rec players? Oh, just how do we, uh, how are we able or how would you think we should think about the game so that we can still gain the enjoyment out of it while still having the same discipline that allows us to beat the game? Because I think well, I think to add to John's comment too, I mean, I, I love that question. I think it's a great question because we hear, at least I hear quite a bit at the smaller stake tournaments, hey, this is Texas Hold'em, not Texas Fold'em. And, you know, we're like, you know, I, I came here to play. I put down my 75 bucks. I want to play hands. So right. I think so. So I think yeah. John's point is kind of like well, how for the people you know for a lot of the people that are out there saying well that doesn't sound very fun to go play a four hour tournament and play eight hands. Right. How do you still have fun while doing that? Or yeah, how how, well, how would you recommend a recreational player do that? Okay. Well, I got to ask one more clarifying question. By fun, are you talking about the fun of the gambling itself, or are you talking about the camaraderie camaraderie fun? Uh, I just mean the the mental discipline. Uh, so when a lot of times people get bored, they want to play the hand, they want to be involved in it. And mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of takes a different, you need to have a different attitude, I think, in order to be able to fold and still find the enjoyment out of it. You know, yeah. you find enjoyment in different areas. And that's kind of my question is uh, like, for example, you could just make a game like, how tight do you think I could be under the gun and yeah. still get action or those types of things? I, and I don't know what they should be, but. No, well, I, I think you're onto it there. If, if somebody listening to this is like feeling like, hey, I need I want to start playing tighter, then, yeah, make that the game so that, you know, you either win or lose that game by your own standards. I mean, that can be kind of fun to give yourself new challenges, whether it's, you know, eating, exercising, whatever. So if, if, if increased discipline becomes a game inside itself for someone, then that can be a form of fun and satisfaction when they accomplish it. The, the thing that I think is really fun about playing tighter out of position is that it makes your results go up. And it creates more confidence. You know, people see that discipline and it kind of scares people a little bit. Uh, and then and then they're going to react with a little more fear when you play hands against them. So I believe that the act of playing tighter out of position can make the game a whole lot more fun if one of the things that makes it more fun for you is gaining more respect from, you know, your opponents. Um, I like the word experiment. You know, it's a really good experiment that anyone can try is just just to basically take like 20% of their marginal hands, whatever that means to them, and just start folding them, you know, out of position only. So so we've talked a lot about kind of the uh, the auto fold range and playing tighter. Mm-hmm. 
when you think about the it depends range, which is uh, kind of kind of everything else, uh, how do you how do you characterize that? I know this is like a whole coaching coaching lesson and a series mm-hmm. of lessons, but uh, one of the things that I know I continue to try to try to resolve in my brain is there there's seemingly a million different things that we are told that we need to consider. Uh, it depends right. on. Uh, tournament right. situation. It depends on stack sizes. It depends on your potential opponents in the pot. It depends on their stack sizes. It depends yep. on your image at the table. It depends on their perceived image of you at the table. It de- you know it depends. It depends. It depends. And, yeah. and I get, and I get it. And that's why it's such a complicated game. Um, and and you know for the for the sake of trying to make it easier, do you have sort of a a framework that you think about? Are there certain things that you give more weight to as you're making those decisions on your it depends range? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, this does get quickly complicated. Um, but I do think there are ways to simplify some of the decisions when you can consciously know what the parameter is that should be the one that decides it, the decision, right? So like tournaments, for example, um, you know, if you've only got a 15 BB stack or whatever, many of those decisions are player independent. It's based on stack size, position, and cards only, right? Those are some of the most relatively easiest decisions that a lot of people make correctly because they don't depend on the other. You can remove some of the factors from from the equation, yeah. So one of the things that does come up with with my clients where I think people, let's say, um, use put more weighting on some variables than others in a, in a misguided way. I think the one that doesn't get enough emphasis is stack size in general, in terms of where it should weigh into the decision. Okay. And, and what I mean by that is um, like one of the things I coach live players on is to have a pregame, a prehand routine, just like a baseball pitcher. You know, you do try to do the same thing every time. And one of the things I try to do is scan the stack sizes very quickly. And so, so the idea here is like, so let's play, say I'm playing one, two, and my stack is 300, right? And I'm in seat one and the guy in seat nine only has, uh, you know, 50, but I don't see it, right? So it comes around to me and, you know, he makes it four and I make it, let's say he's got like 30, okay? Yeah, yeah. You know, he makes it four and I make it 20, right? (laughs) I would never choose that. I would never choose that number if I knew he had four. This isn't a great example, but when you know the stack sizes all the time, you you have to have that information to make the right plays, first of all. And second of all, you need to anticipate the all-in thresholds like a street or two early and start adjusting. This is in cash games, but it, it applies to deep stack tournaments and start adjusting uh, the bet size based on the pot size and the stack size. You know, a lot of the stuff is about betting three-quarter pot, half pot, or whatever. I think that that that's a mistake sometimes because sometimes betting three-quarter pot is going to leave you with an awkward stack-to-pot ratio. Right. Where better planning would leave you with a full-size pot bet on the turn, let's say. Okay, so these are some of the stack size mistakes that I see a lot in cash games that can be fixed back to your point, where it's like, what parameter should these things be based on? Stack size oftentimes is under, uh, underused. 
Okay. Um, but it, it's super complicated. It, and everybody's got their own style. You know, in terms of how do you play the it depends hands, right? Right, right. I mean, that's what makes poker poker, you know. God, I mean, I've worked with clients where I'll, they'll send me hands, you know, and I'll be working with them two or three sessions. And I think I got a pretty good line on where they're coming from. And then they'll somebody send me some hand. That's like a totally different thing. And I'll be like, what were you thinking there? And I'm like, I was thinking this. And I was like, wow. It's like, I keep getting reminded that every single poker mind is unique. And every single poker mind is always changing. You know? Well, and kind of uh, along, along those lines, I'm curious, kind of your thought on this then. Is there, uh, would, you, would you claim or would you believe that there is a right way to play Texas Hold'em? Or is it more about, you know, knowing your personality, knowing your bent and having a, a strategy that's, you know, fully integrated and consistent, you know, internally consistent. Like you can, yeah. you can be a, you can be a really, really good player as a loose aggressive player. You can be a really, really good player as a tight aggressive player. Like, I mean, or yeah. do you feel like there is kind of one right way and whether that's GTO or not, um, you know, what, what's kind of your gut in that yeah. where there's people yeah, that are no. saying, well, I want to play tighter, but boy, that's just not me. And, and I, that will kill me internally if I have yeah. to play tight or, you know, is, would you recommend that? Well, you still need to go down that road or, you know, no, let, let's figure out a way that you can still be true to who you are and what you want to do and the enjoyment that you want to get out of the game and figure right. out a, a good winning strategy within that. Well, that's why it's important to separate, you know, whether we're talking about the ideal perfect professional, what they would do to improve, and then right. what we do in the real world. Okay. Um, but in terms of right way, wrong way, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of different ways to play poker, but uh, in terms of if somebody wanted to play in such a way that they were guaranteed to make money at poker for life, I don't, uh, well, let me do a little sidetrack. Okay. <laughs> I asked, I did a survey. I asked five professional grinders in Vegas, buddies of mine that play one, two and two, five. I said, what do you think is the loosest VPIP of anybody who's actually making a living in Vegas playing poker? Interesting. I thought that was a great question. Great question. And they yeah. Came up with thirty. And in other words, they these are five professional poker players who believed that if you play more than thirty percent of your hands, you cannot make a living playing poker in Vegas. Did, did they all have different answers, or was it pretty consistent no, right no, around thirty? No, no, no. I asked for both ends. I said, "What do you think the tightest is, and what do you think the loosest is?" And the range was fifteen percent to thirty. They thought it's possible to make a living playing as few as fifteen percent of wow. VIP. And it's possible to make a living playing as loose as a 30% VPIP, but nowhere outside either one of those ranges. Interesting. And I know most of, most of the people that are listening know what that is, but it's, it's VPIP is basically the voluntary percentage. Yeah. Well, yeah, how, how many, it, how many hands you're playing that you don't have to play? Yeah. yeah. How, many, how many hands you put chips in voluntarily that you didn't right. have right. to, you weren't in the blinds or whatever. So 30%, that's a pretty, tight. pretty tight, right? Yeah. And, and, and then the other thing is, I've, you know, I've been surrounded by professional poker players now for 30 years, you know, playing poker with them. And I've never, ever known somebody who truly grinded out a living at poker who wasn't a tight player, not one. That's all I can say on that, you know. Yeah. So that's why with rec players, my suggestion is, yeah, you want to enjoy poker. You want to love poker. You want to get better at poker. Getting better at poker is part of the enjoyment. Start today 
by just folding more hands out of position and then think of it as an experiment. Do you, do you think that that translates to, uh, to tournaments as well? The whole, you know, the 15 to 30% or obviously it changes as you get into different. Oh, no, no. Part. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely not. See, yep. in a tournament, somebody could start out with a strategy on hand one that they're going to play 70% VPIP if yep. they wanted. And that could be a viable tournament strategy. It truly could. So it, I know just enough about tournaments to know that, that it's – entirely different form of poker yep so you're, and, you're talking and, cash and, game which is which is equivalent to yeah, a lot of the, the deep stack I'm talking about, right grinding for a living that's why yep. i have to keep specifying right yeah right right, right. yep you know, grinding for a living in cash games tight is right i do believe tournaments i just don't know yeah fair enough no <laughs> fair enough fair enough all right well we are going to cut off the conversation right there with tommy angelo and we will uh, continue that next week. Uh, he was gracious enough to give us a longer period of time, but I do want to chop it up and do a couple different weeks uh, so these episodes don't get too long. Uh, so we'll continue it then. Uh, but as always, we are sponsored by Running Aces Racetrack and Casino. And uh, thanks to those guys for sponsoring us. Thanks to the panel for joining us. Thanks to Tommy Angelo. Thanks to all of our guests uh, who have been part of the show and, and made this just a, a super fun uh, time of learning the game in the context of community. And hopefully uh, all of you are enjoying this as well. Feel free to reach out to me with any comments, questions, concerns, ideas, suggestions, whatever it might be. Steve at RecPokerTraining.com. If you want to support what we're doing, uh, feel free to go on to Patreon.com. You can go to Rec Poker there and you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, just sort of encourage us and, and uh, to continue the work that we're doing. Otherwise, just enjoy it for free. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Get better. And make sure you tell me all of your great successes on the felt. Uh, so until next week, uh, take care. <laughs>